Our sermon today is from Psalm 126. These are God's words. A song of ascents. When Yahweh returned to the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Yahweh, as the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves with him. Amen. You can take your seats. So we are coming back to our series on the Psalms of Ascent. And with this psalm, we are called again to identify with the Israel of old. This time we identify with them shortly after they were released from Babylonian captivity to return to Jerusalem. Now I say shortly after they were released, because in this psalm we are thrown right into the middle of this historical narrative. Some of the restoration of Israel had taken place, but much of what we know would happen hadn't happened yet. God wanted his people to sing Psalm 126 from an earlier place and his plan of restoration intentionally. What do I mean? Well, let me show you from the text where I get my timing for this psalm, and then I'll try to explain why God and his providence might have wanted this psalm to be written at this particular time. We see that the psalm is broken into two sections. The first three verses serve as a reminder They recall the great things he has done for Israel and how they felt about these things as they happened. The last three verses are a request that God would, quote, restore our captivity. Now, did this seem strange to you as we read this psalm? The psalmist rejoices first that the captives of Zion were no longer captives. They were back in their land. And then he asks that their captivity would be restored. Verse 4, restore our captivity, O Yahweh. This doesn't really make sense on the surface, so how should we understand this? Well, I think the sense in which we should take the captivity is as a title. The captivity, or our captivity, represents the captivity in general that Israel went into. And at this point, the captivity continues. There are still Israelites in Babylon. Though the door was open to all Israelites to leave, and we're going to touch on that later, and some took this miraculous opportunity, this is the subject of our first three verses, there were still Israelites in Babylon who did not take it. This is the subject of the last three verses. We know from the biblical account that the full restoration of Israel happened in stages, and there were three prominent ones. The only way to make sense of this psalm is if we understand it to be written between these stages of Israel's return. This was a psalm that was originally sung after the first wave of Israelites returned to the land. These freed Israelites were requesting that the remaining Israelites would also come back into the land with them. We will consider why some remained in Babylon later on in the sermon. But for now, I want you to see that this psalm can be broken down into two parts, a reminder and a request. This week we're going to focus on the reminder in the first three verses And the next time I preach, we're going to focus on this request. 
But before we focus in on the first three verses, I want to point out that the timing of this song gives us a particular song for the rest of time. God could have had a psalmist write this song once all that would come back into the land had done so. Someone might even think that that would have glorified God more, meditating on the final, complete restoration of Israel. But that's not what God wanted us to do. Because God chose to write this song when he did, at phase one of the return, we have to conclude that a song written from this perspective is fit for a purpose other than highlighting the magnificence of God's completed work. I don't want to spoil my next sermon too much, but I believe that the form of the psalm speaks to a pattern that God uses over and over. His redemption is a progressive redemption, and we will continue to see this pattern played out throughout history. So having this psalm written when it was, it carries a particular relevance throughout history. But more on that in the coming weeks. Now let's go back to the first verse. It says, When Yahweh returned the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. When Israel found themselves back in their land, it was too good to be true. It was like they were dreaming. Dreams have a way of putting us in a much better situation than we have in reality. We've all woken up from a dream and thought, Dumb, that was just a dream. I'm not super rich on a tropical island with my gorgeous wife and kids swimming in a pool of ice cream. Israel's experience was something like this waking up experience, only the opposite. They thought that they were seeing these things in their sleep. They were too good to be awake things. They found reality was like a really great dream, but it was real. Now, I don't want to assume that all of you know how Israel's captivity and return happened, so let's go over that history briefly before we move on. So before any of this happened, God had been very kind to Israel. He had miraculously brought them out of Egypt from terrible living conditions under forced labor to a land of milk and honey. This is how God described it. There, in this excellent land... Living under God's law, they experienced tremendous prosperity and freedom, nothing like anything that the nations around them were experiencing. But after experiencing all this favor from God, what did they do? They rebelled against the God who gave it to them. They turned from the living God to worship dead idols made of wood and stone. This was a display of appalling sin that God could not overlook especially since they were warned by him that if they turned to idols, that they would be punished for it. They were even told that this punishment would have the particular form that it took, that they would be scattered into exile. This is the warning that he gave them, Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 27. When when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, And by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, so as to provoke his anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, that's the Gentiles, and you will be left 
few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. I'll just point out that all these passages that I'm reading are in your sheets if you want to follow along. And this is exactly what happened. God sent Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the ruthless Babylonian empire, to scatter Israel's blood over the land that he gave them. And he dragged the remaining Israelites back to Babylon as captives for his service. This was right for God to do. This was just. Sin is really that bad. Just as a side note, it can seem to us today when the sun is shining outside, we're experiencing all this favor, and we live in such prosperity here in New Zealand that God is not provoked to anger by our sin. But our perception of God is not that different from rebellious Israel. God is patient and slow to bring his anger down on any people. That's what we're experiencing. But because we don't see his anger, we shouldn't conclude that he's not angry. Scripture says that God is angry at sin all day long. God will always do what is just, and idolatry in all its forms must be punished on earth and into eternity by his just standards. Scripture says that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. We're going to read this passage later. And we have a small picture what this judgment will look like in the punishment of Israel through Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's cruel destruction of Jerusalem is detailed in a few places in Scripture, but a good summation of it is found in Jeremiah 52. Now, I won't read the whole chapter, but I do want you to have a taste of what happened and what it was like for Israel. We're going to begin at verse 4. Now, I actually forgot this one passage in your reading, so sorry about that. Now, it happened in the ninth year of his reign... On the tenth day of the tenth month, the Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came, he and all his military forces, against Jerusalem, and they camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city came under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so strong in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was breached, and all the men of of war fled, And went forth from the city at night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by the way of the Arabah. But the military forces of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah and the plains of Jericho, and all his military forces were scattered from him. They seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in, in the land of Hamath, And he spoke his judgment on him. Nebuchadnezzar did this. Then the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he also slaughtered the princes of Judah and Ribah. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah and the king of Babylon, bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. And we'll stop there. But you can see that Israel's destruction in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar would have been full of unhinged brutality. And life under Babylonian rule came with another set of torments. We read this in Psalm 137, which is particularly about this captivity. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and also wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our lyres. That's their little guitars. For there our captors, 
asked us about the words of a song. And our tormentors asked joyfully, saying, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. They were being tormented by their captors, and they were also being tormented by the memory of Zion, that joyful place where they once experienced the favor of God. What were they doing there in Babylon? How could they be in this place? They were there because of their sin. They had themselves to blame. Their joy had been stripped away from them by God because of their sin and rebellion. But with time, the experience of exile led many of the captives to repent. We have one of the Israelites' prayers of repentance recorded for us in the book of Daniel. This is what he said after 70 years of captivity. This is Daniel. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and judgments. Moreover, we have not listened to your slaves, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have been banished, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. And Daniel continues from there. But that is how you repent, people. Laying it all out there. Confessing to God that you are the broken wretch that you truly are. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. That is what scripture says. But we also know this because of what God did next to Israel. He graciously brought them back into the land. He heard their prayers and brought them into the land of milk and honey and into the joy of their salvation. God loves to show, this, show undeserving rebels this kind of favor. This is the God that we serve. Hallelujah. It is also important to note that God has always, had always intended to restore Israel back to their land. Jeremiah the prophet was told before their exile that they would be in captivity for 70 years and no more. But when this promise came to fulfillment, God did it in the most unexpected way. He did not restore them to the land by sending a bunch of wild and devastating plagues or by parting the sea, as he did with the Exodus. There were no extraordinary visible signs or displays of power this time around. They did not face the persistent resistance of a tyrannical pharaoh, but instead, God simply put it in the heart of their captor to let them go. This is how the book of Ezra starts, giving an account of this. And it is important to note, to make sense of these verses, that by this time, the Babylonians had been taken over by the Persians. So verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, which we talked about, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed through all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth 
and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. What? Cyrus just all of a sudden said, go. Go back to where you want to be. I won't keep you here anymore. Build yourself a temple and start back up those songs of joy. That is how it happened. Extraordinary and inexplicable behavior from a pagan king under normal circumstances. What other captive people gives benefit to the king, gets their labor and everything, what other captive people is ever just let go? This was unheard of. For those who were freed, it was truly like a dream. They would have left the city of Babylon for Jerusalem floating. As they went away, they must have been looking over their shoulder to see if anyone was going to stop them. Is this even real? King Solomon had said decades before this, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wills. But is this really what he meant? What happened here? Yes. This is what he meant. God can even make a stream flow in the opposite direction. There is nothing too hard for him. God can and does put it into the hearts of people, even kings, to radically turn on a dime, to suddenly live in obedience to his will. The captive Israelites didn't miss out on any display of God's power by not witnessing the plagues. In many ways, this was an even more extraordinary display of his power. It made sense that Pharaoh would eventually cave to the pressure of the water turning to blood, overwhelming frogs, gnats, wild animals, the death of livestock, the boils, the thunderstorms, the locusts, days of darkness, and the death of his firstborn. It makes earthly sense that Pharaoh would eventually submit to God with these overwhelming displays of power. But King Cyrus simply turned. His resistance was broken like that. This was no less powerful or extraordinary than the plagues. He was a wicked king. God just wanted to display his power in another way this time. And I think the way he acted on Israel's behalf this time would have most certainly contributed to their dreamlike state. Really? We're just going to be let go? That just can't be real. Which brings us to our next verse, verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with songs of joy. This extraordinary redemption landed like a joke. The favor of God had caused in Israel an irrefusable kind of laughter. Their mouth was filled with it. They couldn't help but have it spill out. The extremes of their conditions in life from one day to the next could not have been more radical. From inescapable bondage to absolute freedom. The kind of joy that this produces cannot be suppressed. All inhibitions must give way to an ugly kind of teary-eyed laughter. <clears throat> After our New Year's party a few weeks ago, in God's providence, we all have a movie scene that is a great example of this kind of laughter. Everyone except Mark and Emma who ditched us early. <laughs> 
we watched Escape from Pretoria, a prison break movie. Remember what the taxi ride home was like at the end. They were utterly astonished. Against all odds, they had actually escaped that prison. They were free, and this led them to laugh like they had never laughed before. Just a collage of laughing in the car going down the road. Hugs, kisses, tear-filled eye contact that would have otherwise been really uncomfortable. They communicated with no words, just laughter. Just soaking in the moment together with the most natural and uninhibited expressions of joy. This is something of what Israel must have felt when God lifted their oppression and granted their freedom. Only it must have felt even greater. The guys who escaped the prison in the movie worked in hope to seal their freedom. Israel had no hope and had their freedom handed to them. So they laughed and songs of joy were on their tongue. Our psalm tells us that the news of Israel's restoration went out to the surrounding nations. We see this in the second half of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. The nations would have known how incredible Israel's fortunes were. What other enslaved nation has just been let go like this? I believe this would have been the first time in history that this would have happened. This just doesn't happen without a work of God. It is a self-evident miracle, and the nations had to acknowledge it. It was irrefusable. Then we see in verse 3 that Israel confirms what the nations were saying by saying their exact same words back to them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. Now we've covered all the verses we are going to consider this week, but now we're going to come to our application We've already acknowledged that we here at Redwood should identify with the people who were freed from Babylon long ago. They are our people. We are part of that covenant people. A direct application is that we should, as new covenant members, rejoice in the specific things that God did for our people in ancient times. They are extraordinary things. It sealed our redemption now. This is our psalm, just as much as it was theirs. God has done great things for us, and we should worship him for returning our people back from Babylonian exile. We have also acknowledged that this psalm shows us something of how God works. His wrath, or his anger, led him to send Israel away to captivity. His mercy and loving kindness led him to redeem Israel from captivity. We can know who God is by the way that he works. And there are a ton of applications that we could make from what he did here. But is that all that we can draw from this part of the psalm today? Is there something that is embodied in this narrative that transcends it in some way? I think so. That's what we're going to consider. Consider Jesus' first sermon recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. He was teaching in the synagogue of his hometown, And he opened the scroll of Isaiah to this place and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then Luke says this, And Jesus closed the scroll 
gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus announced the dawn of a new work of redemption, the favorable day of the Lord, that's what it's called, and he framed this work of redemption in all of the language of captives being freed. How could this be true? Was he going to take down their Roman oppressors? Not in the near future. The kingdom of Rome would eventually fall centuries later, but I don't think that this was Jesus' primary application. There, were, there was a more spiritual fulfillment to this language of restoration. Through Christ's ministry, people were going to repent of their sins and return to the favor of their maker. Their freedom was not going to be one with ten visible plagues raining down from the sky, but through the powerful inner workings of the Holy Spirit in the sinner, being powerfully freed from the bondage of sin and the slavery of the devil. Sinners held captive to the sway of the devil's lies would be taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The scripture teaches us that all men begin in captivity. Look at why Paul urges Timothy to teach the word of God in 2 Timothy 2. He says to do this so that perhaps God may grant the lost repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. In the same way that the hope came from nowhere for Israel, through the hearing of the gospel, a path of freedom is open to the sinner that was previously thought impossible. Before Christ, we didn't know what was good for us. The way that seemed right to us led us down the path of death, but God showed us the path to life abundant, and that path was repentance, submitting to his goodwill, receiving the forgiveness that is given to us through the work of the cross. And when a man has tasted and seen that only the Lord is truly good, this revelation cannot help but hit you like a ton of bricks. Can this truly be possible? Can I be loose from Satan's chains? Can I be freed from the miserable life I now live for an experience of joy I didn't know was possible? Fullness of joy? I must be dreaming. I was blind, but now I see. Now I know what true sight is. Reality is far better than my wildest dreams. And what follows next for the Christian? Laughter. The people of God should be marked by a distinct kind of laughter. A deep and weighty laughter. Like you just narrowly escaped death and won the jackpot all at the same time. In this way, we can apply this particular narrative of Israel's restoration to ourselves personally. God gave us the imagery of the nation's restoration to shape our worship. It's an important image that we hold to to understand our redemption. When we sing this psalm now, I hope that you are reminded not only of the nature of your captivity-breaking salvation, but of what kind of joy a salvation like this should produce in you. 
Have you ever looked at what God has given you and wondered if you were dreaming? Have you ever laughed at how good you've got it, considering how little you deserve? It's a joke. Look at us sinners here, experiencing the presence of the Holy One, worshipping Him with freedom from sin. It's hard to believe that we've found such favour. Understanding this extraordinary favour will produce a different kind of joy, a different kind of laughter than what the world has. We have a laughter rooted an eternal redemption that flows out of us in a form of worship to the Most High God. What is at the root of many of the world's jokes and laughter? Penis jokes. That's a joke, right? Or a guy puking because he can't handle his alcohol. That's the kind of thing that will get them laughing. But how empty does a life sustained by crude jokes and heavy drinking leave you once you've sobered up and seriously reflect upon your life? Life suddenly becomes very unfunny, about as funny as a hangover. Instead, your life can become the joke. The best you can hope for is a dirt nap and no afterlife. But the Bible says, it is appointed for men to die once And after this comes judgment. And deep down, we all know this and we fear this. God gave us a conscience so that we would know it. So we will continue having this fear, this form of Babylonian torment, until our consciences are finally set free by God. Jesus has opened a way of escape. It is right there within each one of our reaches open to anyone who will take it. Could this really be so? Can a man truly live with a good conscience? Could life really be that good? Yes, it can. And you don't have to spend hours and hours making little wooden keys so that you can unlock every door of your prison. That's what the movie did. Jesus just opens all the doors and you're free to walk. You just have to believe that life is better outside the prison. You have to take the opportunity that God gave you to leave Babylon. The only thing that will stop someone from turning to Christ's way of escape is a love of their sin, a love of their chains. I briefly mentioned at the beginning that when God opened the path for Israel to return to Jerusalem, many didn't take it. They thought it was better to have the comforts of Babylonian captivity than the difficulties that come with the freedom and favor of God in Jerusalem. That is a picture of what I'm referring to here. Salvation is given to those who trust that following Christ is better than following Satan and serving your flesh. May we, as a church, have this kind of trust in the goodness of God. Follow his ways and laugh at how good we have it under his rule. Which leads us to our final application. Do the nations say of us, the modern day church, Yahweh has done great things for them. Can non-Christians recognize that the favor of God is upon us as they did with ancient Israel? Sadly, I think the work of God is barely seen today in the lives of Christians because most are content with living in Babylon. 
there is very little visible change in so many so-called Christians. No serious rejection of the Babylonian way. No embracing of the loving way of Christ. Now, it is true that the nations are not going to see us walking through the countryside knowing that a wicked king just let us go. But our freedom should be visible in other ways. They should be able to tell that Satan no longer has a hold over us. They should see the joy of our salvation woven into all of our actions. And they should see it on our faces. They should see that we don't curse and refuse to participate in their filthy talk. But instead, we are weirdly thankful for everything, both the good and the bad. This is how Paul frames the Christian life in Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which is filthy jokes, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There is a difference between the Christian and the world, the free man and the captives of Babylon. With this contrast on display, the world will know where our joy comes from. They will recognize the difference between light and dark. There's no greater contrast. It's not a Babylonian shallow joy that we have. The joy we have is the kind you get walking away from Babylon. God's work is all over the life of a Christian, especially in his laughter and in the songs he sings. Because God fills the Christian with a joy that cannot help but burst out from their mouths. I know we've experienced this. May we be a people that those outside the church will observe and say, I know that guy. He used to be a dropkick. Look at him and his family now. Look at how he makes his wife smile. Look at that joyful church community he's part of. Yahweh has truly done great things for them. As we close, <clears throat> I hope that you're feeling encouraged. I've seen the work of God in all of you here at Redwood. All of us have a story of being freed from Babylonian captivity. God has truly done great things for us, and this has made us a glad people. Praise God. Let's thank the Lord now for his word and ask that he would help us to apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Father, how can we speak of your kindness? Lord, we thank you for this picture that we've seen today of this inexplicable freedom that was given to Israel from Babylonian captivity. Lord, we know that captivity. We had that life of sin and bondage to our flesh, unable to do what is right. But Lord, through your Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel, you have transformed us so that we now experience a freedom that we could not know it was possible. Lord, you are truly a wonderful God, and we want to thank you for this message today. We want to thank you for the truth of this word. 
We thank you for the authority that it has coming from you. This is the truth. And Lord, we thank you that you have transformed us through it. Lord, I pray that we would live in a worthy manner according to our calling. Lord, may we always reject the darkness and embrace the light, knowing that your ways are wise and are always good for us. You are the God who made all things. Your ways are perfect and everything you do is just. So Lord, may we honor you with our lives, be glorified in the way that we embrace you and reject the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing this psalm now to the tune of Joyful, Joyful. Could someone please hold the baby for her? When Yahweh brought back to Zion Captives from the exile land We were like those who were dreaming Those restored to health again Then our mouths were filled with laughter Tongues with songs of joy again then they said among the nations, God has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are filled with joy and praise. Lord, restore our fortunes to us like streams in the desert place. Those who sow with tears and weeping will return with sorrowful songs. Sowing seed will bring forth reaping sheaves that to the Lord belong. Amen. You can take your seats.